Well, here we are. Labor Day weekend. How are you guys doing? Uh, so how did this happen, right? What happened to summer? It went by so quickly. Unbelievable. Labor Day weekend is uh, the, the, the weekend that a lot of my friends who are teachers affectionately refer to as the real New Year's Eve. Right? Does anybody feel that? I took the scenic route of like student life, so I totally resonate with that. When we get to this time of year where the kids go back to school and where our vacations kind of come to an end and we get back to our normal routines, we might not need to buy a new calendar, but nonetheless, there's kind of this sense that it's a new beginning. It feels like a new start. And I love new beginnings. Anyone else? Does anyone like new beginnings? I love new beginnings because it's like they feel like a new opportunity. New beginnings always bring with them a new opportunity for change. To reflect on those areas of our lives that are going well, you know, where we're happy with how things have been going, and to pay attention to those areas of our lives where things have maybe gone off course, where we kind of lost our sense of where we want to be going in our lives and those kinds of things, to pay attention to the habits that maybe we've fallen into that aren't serving us any well and uh, serving us well anymore. And uh, new, new beginnings bring a new opportunity to kind of realign the way that we're living and thinking and to make sure that we're living in a way that's consistent with becoming the kinds of people that we want to be. So now often in the fall, when we think about the changes that we want to make, it's like really practical, right? Like we think about bedtime. So I don't know, maybe some of you over the summer became the kinds of people who stay up late every night, like binge watching Netflix. Anyone? You don't have to, you don't have to raise your hand. Uh, so, you know, so you're up all, all night and then you wake up, you feel tired and you go to work, you can't really do your job very well, or you can't focus on school. It's hard to be, you know, just a, a general nice person. And if you're there, if that's kind of like a pattern that you've fallen into, there's a good possibility that you've been saying that this is the week, right? This is the week that you're going to make those changes, that you're going to turn it all around. Or another common Labor Day New Year's resolution, resolution that I hear people making is around organization. September is like the perfect time to get all of those calendars up to date, right? To get the cupboards tidied up to get the label maker out, to get those systems in place that kind of keep us organized, that help us to stay on top of the things that we need to stay on top of as we transition into the seasons ahead. And now trust me, okay, I am like all for responsible bedtimes and like I love me some like carefully color-coordinated calendars. Like if, if you're there this weekend, I am in your corner, okay? I am cheering you on. But this morning, we are going to look at a passage of scripture that invites us to reflect on whether there are things in our lives that have been getting in the way of our ability to live in the way that God is calling us to live, that God in, is inviting us to live. Whether there are things in our lives that have been getting in the way of our ability to experience the kingdom of God and then to let it shape the way that we think and live and interact with others. And then to kind of like recalibrate the way that we're living and thinking so that we can open ourselves up to what God wants to do in us and through us in the season ahead. Now, over the last 18 months, there's this, this thing that's been happening throughout the world. 
I don't know if any of you have heard of it. It's called the COVID-19 pandemic. Has anyone heard of that? No? No, unreal. Uh, yeah, I've, I, I've heard of it. I, I, we've all heard of it, right? This COVID-19 pandemic thing has like taken us over and it's kind of like turned our whole world upside down. And the reality is that the last 18 months has, has been unlike anything that we've ever experienced. And recently I've heard a lot of people talking about this season as an apocalypse. It's kind of a provocative word, isn't it? It's a word that comes with a lot of baggage for people. It kind of is a very loaded word. And maybe when you, you, uh, you hear the word apocalypse, I think a lot of people think of like zombies, right? And you like walk, is it waking dead, walking dead? I don't even know. You can tell I'm not a zombie person. But I think a lot of people, when you hear the word uh, apocalypse, you think of zombies. And funny enough, the, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States, did release guidelines earlier this year about how to survive a zombie apocalypse. Um, there was rumors that this might happen in 2021, and so they updated their website with some guidance on how you can create a safety plan, what you might need in a safety kit to survive a zombie apocalypse. Um, not necessarily because they were actually concerned that it was going to happen, but it turned out to be a really great way to trick people into actually caring about how to prepare for an emergency. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe some of you, when you hear the word apocalypse, you like picture scenes from uh, the very entertaining but theologically problematic series like Left Behind, right? where people are just kind of like going about their day-to-day business. I just watched this this past year. It was awesome. People are going about their day-to-day business, and then suddenly like the rapture happens, and then they like leave their clothes behind in these neatly folded piles, which is nice. At least it was tidy, right? Or maybe for you, there's something else that comes to mind when you hear the word apocalypse, but the Greek word for apocalypse actually refers to a revealing or an uncovering. It carries the sense of like a curtain or a veil being lifted to reveal what's hidden behind it, to reveal something that once couldn't be seen. And one of the things that I think we can all agree on is that there has been a lot that's been revealed in this past season. There's been a lot that's been exposed about our society, about what we value, about the flaws in our systems and our structures, about the divisions that actually exist between us, about how people act when there's a toilet paper shortage. It's a lot that's been revealed. When the status quo gets disrupted, things have a way of kind of rising to the surface, and suddenly we are face-to-face with realities that we are kind of oblivious to when the world is just carrying on as normal. And if we're honest, I think that most of us would say that a lot has been exposed within each of us. A lot has been exposed about where our hearts are really at, about where we find our identity, about our fears and our worries, about where we seek comfort, about our weaknesses, about where we're placing our trust. A lot has been exposed in this season. And the beautiful thing about having these things revealed in us is that it opens up the opportunity to invite Jesus into these areas of our lives where we once didn't even realize maybe that we needed his help and to let the Spirit work in us to bring God's healing and wholeness so that we we can become the kinds of people that he designed us to be. 
So if you have your Bible, you can open it up with me to Matthew 13 right now. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 23 this morning. But before we do that, I'm going to give you just a little bit of, uh, of an overview of some background of where we're at at this point in the book of Matthew, because the context is really important for understanding the passage. So in the book of Matthew, Jesus kicks off his public ministry in chapter 4. So in chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus makes this announcement. He says, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And this idea of the kingdom of heaven breaking into the world is really the key theme that carries through everything that Jesus says and does from this point forward. Right? In other places of the Bible, we hear the expression, the kingdom of God. Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven, but they're really just two ways of talking about the same thing. And Jesus is announcing that in him, God is entering the world in a whole new way, and he's carrying out his redemptive work of setting things right once and for all. The kingdom of heaven has broken into the world in Jesus, and the kingdom of heaven exists wherever things happen in the way that God wants them to happen. It's a simple way to think about the kingdom of God. Okay? It's, it exists wherever God is reigning as king, so to speak, within our lives or within the world. And Jesus' purpose throughout his ministry was to teach people about the kingdom of God, to give them the opportunity to experience it, and then to call them into extending it to others in the world. And so in chapters 4 to 7 of Matthew, Jesus announces the kingdom, and then he teaches people what the kingdom is all about, right? This is where we find the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' famous teaching about the kingdom of God, where he just kind of like one thing after another blows people's minds and reorients the way they think about everything, about God, about their lives, about themselves. It's just like this incredible uh, reconfiguration of understanding what the world is all about. And then in chapters 8 to 10, Jesus demonstrates the kingdom. So we hear story after story of Jesus performing miracles, of him healing the sick, of him casting out demons. He does these powerful acts that give people the opportunity to experience God's kingdom firsthand. So he announces the kingdom, he teaches about the kingdom, he demonstrates the kingdom. And then in chapters 11 to 12, Matthew starts to highlight something very interesting. And this is really important for understanding our passage today. Matthew tells these stories that point out the reality that people are responding very differently to this message about the kingdom. Different people are responding very differently. Some people, they hear it, and they love Jesus, right? We hear about the disciples, people leave behind their old lives, they follow him, they believe he's the, the Messiah, they're committed. Some people love Jesus, some people are a little bit more neutral, right? We have people who are kind of indifferent, we hear about a lot of crowds in Matthew, so there's people who are maybe curious about what he's saying, who are interested, you know, there wasn't like Netflix here, right? Jesus was providing some good entertainment, but they're not really willing to kind of like lay it all down and follow him. They're more just kind of like, eh, interested, right? And there are people who hate Jesus. 
we know this. We hear a lot about this, right? The religious leaders re- reject Jesus entirely. And in this section, we hear some of them saying that he's a false teacher. People are suggesting that maybe his miracles are being done through the power uh, of evil. The religious leaders are really uncomfortable with the ways that Jesus is like challenging the religious institutions. And so it gets to the point where they plot out this plan to, to kill him. So there's all kinds of different responses to Jesus and his announcement of the kingdom. And in chapter 13, this is the exact thing that Jesus is addressing. So this is where we're going to turn our attention now. So just to set the scene for you in our passage today, Jesus is on the beach. And as so, so often happened when he was out teaching, crowds began to form, right? So he's got this massive crowd of people. And Jesus decides to go into a boat and, and to, to teach from there. So he gets into a boat. He sits down. And it would have kind of created this uh, natural amphitheater. And he starts to teach. Okay, and this is what he says. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds. As he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun, and since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as had been planted. Anyone with ears should listen and understand. So this is like a good good, uh, Norfolk County parable, right? We've got a farmer. Farmer's out scattering seeds in his field, and naturally not all of the seed that he's planting lands on good soil. As he's kind of tossing it out, some of it uh, lands on the footpath, and so it, it can't take root, right? And some of the seed kind of rolls beyond the footpath, and it falls uh, down onto the rocky area where there's just like a shallow layer of dirt. And so those plants don't survive. They eventually get scorched. And then some of this seed, Jesus said, rolls out, out into uh, this place where there's thorns, where there's things kind of competing for the nutrients in the soil and they can't produce fruit. And then some of the seeds, of course, land on the good soil. And we hear there's like this amazing harvest that comes from that. And the kind of soil that the seed lands on ultimately determines the outcome of the plant, whether it lives or dies, and what kind of fruit it produces. Okay, now we're going to come back to the actual parable, because Jesus does something interesting here. He actually, uh, a little bit later on, comes back and interprets the parable. But before that, there's this conversation that he has with his disciples. So in verses 10 to 17, Jesus' disciples ask him a question. And we're not going to read through it just for the sake of time. But uh, this is really interesting, Jesus' disciples come to him and they ask him why it is that he's using parables to do his teaching. And maybe like we're kind of used to this idea that Jesus uses parables, but, but with, to the disciples, it, it seemed kind of strange that this is how he was using these stories that were kind of confusing to teach. And, and so it's a good question, right? Like Jesus is out with this massive crowd of people who are listening to him. And you would think like this, this would be like an amazing opportunity to give a really like clear, compelling explanation of the gospel, right? To maybe like draw one of those diagrams of, uh, I think we've maybe got it up there. Um, one of those diagrams where there's like two cliffs 
right? And then there's like an abyss between them. And then there's like this cross where we have like God or Jesus creating the bridge between sinful people and a holy God. Like this would be like an opportune time for Jesus to give like a really clear, concise gospel presentation and then to do like an altar call, maybe like bring out like a rockin' band, right? Do an altar call and get some good statistics, save some souls, uh, and, and this kind of thing. Like, you know, let everyone know how successful his big event was. This was the kind of scenario. You think about what we do when we have amphitheaters full of people, right? But instead, what does Jesus do? He tells this very puzzling story. He tells a story that forces you to reflect that makes you kind of think for yourself. And so the disciples are like, what are you doing? What's, what's, what's with this? And what Jesus says in his response to the disciples is essentially this. That there are some people who have an openness to him. And for those people, when they, when they hear the parables, it kind of makes them lean in like opens their mind, it forces them to reflect, it causes them to deepen their understanding. But when people's hearts are hard, when they're not interested in God's kingdom, the parables drive them farther away. They hear them, but they don't really listen. They aren't receptive. So Jesus makes it clear that he values something that's different than we, we often value, right? Jesus doesn't value efficiency. He doesn't value popularity. He's not interested in being like a celebrity preacher, even though he's got this whole crowd, right? These aren't the things that really matter to Jesus. What matters is that his followers are really willing to change the way they see things. That they're really willing to let Jesus kind of overhaul their entire lives and redefine it according to what he's calling the kingdom of God. So then Jesus goes back to the parable and he starts to explain what it means. So he talks about the fate of each of these seeds that we just heard about and really how it connects to the way that people respond to his message of the kingdom. And we're going to kind of walk through how things fared for each of these seeds. And as we do that, I want to invite you to do what Jesus invited the crowd to do, which is to listen. To listen really deeply, to pay attention to where you find yourself in this story. What kind of soil are you? How is the kingdom of God taking root and growing in your life? And is there anything that's maybe getting in the way of God doing what he wants to do in you and through you. So the first seed that Jesus talked about was the seed that landed on the path and is eaten up by birds. And so this is what Jesus says about that seed. He says, the seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. They hear it but they don't understand it. And then the evil one comes and snatches away the seed that was planted in their hearts. Now, in our post-enlightenment Western culture, when we hear the word understand, we, kinda, we think about you know, being able to wrap our heads around something cognitively. It's about comprehension. But that's not what Jesus is actually talking about here, right? And we know this because... In the Gospels, the religious scholars, the people who actually had the most religious 
knowledge were some of the people who were the most resistant to Jesus' message. But the Greek word that's used for understand here means to bring together different parts into like a unified whole. There's this deeper level of engagement. So Jesus is talking about people who have a lack of openness, who aren't receptive. These are the people who just aren't interested. They don't care to engage with the Jesus stuff. These are the people who hear his teaching and just kind of write it off as ridiculous or out of touch, right? Loving our enemies, come on, like that's, that's too hard. Right? They're not really interested, and so the kingdom of God can't take root in their hearts. And we hear about this happening quite a lot in the Gospels, right? There was a lot of uh, religious leaders, a lot of people who, who had hard hearts and just weren't open to hearing about what Jesus was saying. It bumped up against the systems that they were hanging on so tightly to. And in our culture, we don't really have like an equivalent. Like the, the resistance to Jesus isn't normally coming from um, these different you know, religious backgrounds. And so I just want to invite you to take a minute to think about where it is in our culture that you see hard-heartedness getting in the way of God's activity in people's lives. We don't have like the Pharisees and the religious scholars like coming, bumping up against Jesus, but we, this is still you know, a feature of the human heart that we experience in our world. Where do you see hard-heartedness getting in the way of what God wants to do in people's lives? I think the most natural, the most obvious thing that comes to mind is people who don't really have any faith at all, right? Who are just so busy with their day-to-day lives that they don't really care to think about God, or maybe they just like straight up reject Christianity or religion altogether. But I think that it goes deeper than that. I think that there's people who go to church every week who would call themselves Christian who might fall into this category. Because remember... Jesus isn't walking around with that little diagram of like the two cliffs and the, and the cross and just asking people to sign dotted line that they believe it. He's not, you know, walking them through the Roman road and, and like just asking them to agree with it cognitively. Jesus is calling people to a whole new way of living that challenges the status quo and that forces us to realign our priorities. So it's possible to believe the right things, but to have no real interest in the kingdom of God. To not really be interested in what God wants to do in our lives or in the world through us. And when that's where we find ourselves, it's kind of like our hearts are that hard soil where the seed couldn't take root and grow. The next seed that we hear about was the one that fell on the rocky soil. And so this is what Jesus says about that seed. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing in God's word. So it is not hard to imagine how this might happen, right? In Jesus' time, like these are the people who had seen Jesus' miracles they were, were impressed with Jesus' teachings or at least like the authority that Jesus spoke with. And so they dove in head first. And I always think about like Christian camp or like those, uh, you know, big rallies that people used to have where it's just like all of this emotion and excitement. 
So these are the people who like bought the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt and they went home and they like burnt their non-Christian CDs. Like, I I don't know if they had CDs back then. Like maybe it was like eight tracks or something. (laughs) But you know, they like, they like, purify their lives, they get the bumper stickers, but there really isn't any depth to their faith. And so as soon as life gets tough, or as soon as they face persecution, which we know in this context was a very real possibility for them, they walked away. So think about this for a second. What happens to your relationship with Jesus when you go through difficult times? Just think about the last time you went through a challenge. What happens to your relationship with Jesus when you go through difficult times? Do you draw closer to him? Or do you push him farther away? In our Western culture where we live with so much privilege and where the prosperity gospel has like a very subtle way of sneaking into our way of understanding faith, I think a lot of us really kind of struggle with this. We struggle to know what to do with our faith when we hit a difficult season. You know, and it's, it's so easy for us to kind of like tuck our faith away on a shelf almost, even if we don't abandon it together, but, but to kind of set it aside and to figure that we'll come back to it when we're able to clean things up, right? When we're in a better headspace or when life is less chaotic, But Jesus wants us to invite him in to those seasons of difficulty. He wants to journey through those struggles with us, to experience his love and his grace in the midst of our pain and our suffering and our messiness. Discipleship is not like a seasonal thing. It involves walking with Jesus through the ups and downs of our lives. And so when when our faith disappears because we hit challenges or because we face persecution, there's something missing, Jesus says. Our faith is just a little too shallow. And then Jesus talks about the seeds that fell among the thorns. And this is what he says. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth. So no fruit is produced. Now, if, you're, uh, if you've been tracking with us through the Ecclesiastes series, this maybe sounds a little bit familiar, right? I think that Jesus is essentially talking about what? Hevel. Okay? <laughs> He's talking about Hevel. And, and the truth is, like, we really can't hear this enough. We live in a materialistic culture where we're constantly striving to accumulate more wealth, where we're always tempted to find our value in what we own or to find our identity in our careers or our accomplishments. We spend a lot of time chasing the wind, as the author of Ecclesiastes would say it, spinning our wheels, chasing after these things that we think will make us happy, but ultimately that don't. And when we do that, we just simply don't have the resources left to pay much attention to what God's up to. And we just don't have the time, like we just don't have the attention to pay attention to what God wants to do in our lives. And so we don't produce fruit, like the seed that falls into the thorns. And then finally, Jesus talks about the seed that falls on the good soil. And this is what he says. The seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear and understand God's word, 
and produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as has, as has been planted. So Jesus says, it's people who, hearly, who truly hear and understand God's word that produce a harvest. And not just like a little harvest, like an abundant harvest. God does incredible things through them. These are the people who embody the fruit of the spirit. These are the people who just like radiate love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. How many were like singing? There's like a song that goes to that. I don't actually know it. I wish I did. Be very helpful. These are the people who like love their enemies and live generously and are willing to sacrifice. These are the people who experience God's kingdom and open it up, extend it to others. And so the question as we're thinking about, you know, how we become these kinds of people, how we can be the good soil in the, the parable is what does it look like to be somebody who truly hears and understands God's word? What does it look like to be someone who hears and understands God's word? And what Jesus is really talking about here is receptivity. It's being receptive to what God wants to do in us. Plants don't like stay up. They don't pull all-nighters, like working really hard to squeeze out fruit. Right? They just do what plants do when they're in the right conditions. And to be people who are open to God's kingdom just means that we're open to what God wants to do in us through the Spirit. We're open to him. It's about walking closely with him. It's about being attentive to his presence. And as I was was thinking about this, there's kind of like three key components that jumped out to me of what it means to someone who's open to God to be good soil, to be the kinds of people who truly hear and understand God's word, I think we need to have open minds, to have open hearts, and to have open hands. Okay, so we're going to look really quickly at each of these three postures as we just wrap up this morning and think about how we can live, live them out in our own lives. So the first one, open minds. People who are receptive to God have open minds. Not necessarily like in the way that we usually use that expression, although that's often a good thing too. But when Jesus taught, the bottom line is this, like it blew people's minds. He forced them to rethink about how they understood everything, everything, how they understood who God is, how they understood who's in and who's out, about what it means to live faithfully, about what it means to be successful. Jesus was always reorienting. It's like this upside-down kingdom. It bumped up against the way people thought. And the teachings of Jesus are just as countercultural in our world today as they were back then. So to be somebody who hears and, open, and is open to understanding God's word means that we need to be willing to let him blow our minds too. Right? Are you willing to let God blow your mind, to let him reorder the way you think. For, for example, for really believing Jesus when he teaches us that we should love our enemies. To trusting Jesus when he changes our minds about who's allowed to sit at the table. When he challenges what we believe about what it means to be successful and how we handle things like money and power. 
Are you willing to let Jesus change your mind about who you are, about who God says that you are, and to let your mind be blown by that? Being people who hear and understand the word of God means having minds that are open, that are even like excited to letting God change the way we think. Because he knows best, right? We trust that God knows best. We trust that Jesus is the smartest person who ever lived. Being receptive to God means having an open heart. Having a heart that's like genuinely open to receiving God's love and to let it overflow to others. You really can't get too far in reading through any of the gospels before noticing that love is like a really big deal in the kingdom of God. When someone comes to Jesus and asks him to identify the most important commandment in Matthew 22, he responds with two commandments, actually. He says they're so closely linked together that you really can't separate them. And what are they? The first one, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second one, you must love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else, he says, kind of like springboards off of these two commandments. Love is at the center of what it means to be somebody who's open and living in God's kingdom. People who truly hear and understand God's word are people who are open to receiving God's love which is an important step, right? Sometimes we just try to like conjure this up within ourselves, but the reality is this, something, this isn't something that we can work up within ourselves. We don't have the human capacity to love this way. John, 1 John says, we love because he first loved us. Right? Our love starts by receiving the love of God. And then we let it overflow in our lives and we love God with everything we have and we love others. So open, open minds, open hearts, and open hands. Again and again in the Gospels, we see that uh, the people who oppose Jesus or the people who walk away from him are people who are holding on tightly to something. They're people who are clinging to their positions of power. They're clinging to status. They're clinging to wealth, to the religious structures that they're so attached to. And so often, you know, 2,000 years later, we like hang on so tightly to those very same things. But Matthew 16, verse 25 says, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. It's pretty powerful. I'm going to read that one more time. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. Danielle Strickland says, surrender is the essential posture of a disciple. To live in a posture of surrender means that we're willing to let go of our plans, of our need for control, of our tendency to chase after wealth and, and status and popularity so that our hands are free, so that, that we can hold them open and receive the gift of life and the kingdom that God wants to give us. So an open mind, an open heart, and open hands. This is what it looks like to be somebody who has a receptive heart to what God wants to do in us and through us. And so maybe during this apocalyptic season that we've been in, 
Things have been brought to the surface in your life that you haven't known how to deal with. Maybe your heart's been hard and you really haven't been interested in paying much attention to God. Kind of like the seed that fell on the path. Maybe in the season you've discovered that your faith was more shallow than you'd realized. That with all of the stress and the pain that you kind of tucked it away on a shelf and decided that you'd come back to it later. Or maybe you've been stressing about finances or you know, gotten carried away with online shopping. <laughs> I've heard about that happening in a few people's lives. Maybe you've been caught up in the worries of this world, chasing after these things that end up like crowding out our ability to, to be open to God and attentive to God. And maybe this Labor Day weekend with the spirit of change that's in the air, God's inviting you to realign your heart and your mind and to open up your hands so that you can experience the peace and the joy of his kingdom as we transition into this season ahead. And we're going to celebrate communion together this morning. Um, But before we do that, I want to just invite you, invite us together to take a couple of minutes to reflect on where we find ourselves in this parable. So think about that for a moment. Where do you find yourself in the parable of the sower this morning, right now, in this season? What has the, the soil of your heart been like? Have you been like the seed that landed on the path, kind of closed off to God, not interested? Has your faith been a little too shallow to endure the challenges that you've been facing? been distracted, focusing on other priorities? Where do you find yourself in this parable this morning? Now, how is God inviting you to open up your mind or your heart or your hands in a new way to be more receptive to him in the season ahead? God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you that we can trust you in all of the different seasons of our lives. 
And God, I pray that wherever we find ourselves this morning, as we reflect on this parable of the sower, that you would help us to just open ourselves up, to be open to what you want to do in us and through us. God, you always meet us where we're at. And so God, if we've been struggling, if we've been distant, I pray that this would be an opportunity for us to draw close to you once again. And God, I pray that you would speak to, to each of us, that you would call us by name, that you would tell us where you want to go, that you would empower us by your spirit to be faithful to you, to represent your kingdom in our world, whatever we have in store throughout the fall. We love you and we trust you. In your name, amen.